0: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to True Restoration. Here is your host. I'm Nicholas Wansbutter, your host, and uh, I have the pleasure, as always, being joined by our regular guest, uh, Father Bernard Utley, OSB. Father, uh, welcome to the show, and thanks for joining us once again. Thank you for having me again. I'm happy to be here. And uh, this show uh, is entitled uh, Indwelling of the Holy Ghost, and uh, we've, we've once again got a lot of uh, fascinating uh, ground to cover that Father Bernard is going to lead us through speaking about uh the ascension and then and, and speaking about uh, how uh, the divine uh the trinity i suppose and the holy ghost specifically mm-hmm. uh dwells within us um and uh, now this show, of course, uh, as with all our shows, is brought to you by Audible.com. And if you're a bookworm like all of us here at the Restoration Radio Network, but a little too busy to devote hours at a time to read, then why not visit Audible.com and check out the huge selection of downloadable audio books uh, that you can download to your smartphone or your computer. Uh they've got a free trial that listeners to Restoration Radio can make use of, a 30-day no-obligation trial membership that you can access at audibletrial.com forward slash Restoration Radio. You get a free audiobook to listen to, and um, I uh, have uh, made use of it myself. And I've been impressed with their selection and the quality of their product, and it's pretty reasonable even after the, the uh, trial membership. So that's audibletrial.com forward slash restoration radio and the spiritual life is also underwritten by True Restoration with articles, books and videos linked at truerestoration.org while a portion of the operating costs uh, of the radio network are underwritten by True Restoration uh, we are truly listener supported and dependent upon our benefactors uh, so we ask you to consider uh, making a donation if you can and uh, or uh, better yet uh, getting a subscription to our uh, network, and that can be done at truerestoration.org forward slash donate. And uh, Restoration Radio programs, including the Spiritual Life, are available on the restorationradionetwork.com, uh, also on iTunes and <coughs> Stitcher. And uh, you'll also find on uh, truerestoration.org a link to Trad Circle, a social network founded in 2008 by Father Anthony Tricata, and uh, currently moderated by the True Restoration staff. Uh, One of its original purposes was to enable young people who feel called to marriage to meet like-minded types, but it's expanded in scope, rather, and it's uh, a good place, for safe place for any uh, Catholic to make new friends and have discussions. So uh, with that bit of uh, housekeeping out of the way, uh, Father, I'll I'll turn it over to you. And we just, of course, have uh, fairly recently uh, had the... uh, the period of the Ascension at, uh, in the mm-hmm. liturgical year and uh, Pentecost, and I know you want to start with a bit of a discussion of the Ascension. Correct. Yeah,
1: ultimately I want to speak about the divine indwelling of the Holy Ghost in the souls of the just. Uh, but I think it's best to start, logically speaking, it's best, I think, to start with the Ascension of our Lord into Heaven and the mystery of the descent of the Holy Ghost at Pentecost. Because... These mysteries uh, lead us into the mystery of the divine indwelling. And also liturgically speaking, you know, we've just had these feasts, so I think it's most appropriate to explain their meaning and uh, show that their application to the spiritual life. Um, You know, our Lord, uh, before his ascension into heaven, uh, even before his passion, he, he said to his apostles, I am going to him who sent me. But because I have spoken these words, sorrow has entered into your heart. But I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go. For if I go not, the Paraclete will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And our Lord told his apostles here that he was going back to his father from where he came. There to have, uh, to have his sacred humanity glorified and rewarded for all his sufferings and merits. There to be plunged. Into the infinite ocean of life and joy, which is the life of the eternal father. What, the glory that he deserved in his humanity. But he made it clear that his departure would not only be no loss for them, but it would actually be a positive gain for them. But how in the world would, could it be expedient for them if he left them? You know, that's hard to understand. Uh, how could it be better for them that their Lord and Savior leave them? And, and Bishop Sheen, somewhere in, in one of his works, he said, How could it be better for them if the captain of their souls left them when they themselves were supposed to navigate other souls safely through the sea of life, to the eternal shore? How could it be expedient for the good shepherd to leave his sheep when they were about to be sent out among ravenous wolves? How, how could it help? How could it help their mission Of converting the world and establishing his church if he who is the way the truth and the life should leave them and i think nicholas the reason why he must leave them he explained this himself is that he wanted to be closer to them but how can that be so how how could how be closer than he already was he was right beside them they touched him but our lord said like like a tender father because he was a father to them spiritually speaking. He, they were his children. And our Lord told his apostles before his ascension, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world seeth me no more, but you see me, because I live and you shall live. So he was to return in a new way, and not just in his resurrected form, not in the flesh primarily, is he talking about, for he took his glorified body into heaven, but he was to return and abide with them in a new way in the spirit Christ would send into their souls the paraclete that is the consoler the an advocate uh, it means a divine friend another divine friend because he was a friend he was a divine friend to them and he said I will send another divine friend the Holy Ghost the third person of the Blessed Trinity and in fact in the Acts of the Apostles, the Holy Ghost is often called the Spirit of Jesus, because it is the Holy Ghost who is the source of all the virtue, all the grace, the wisdom, and holiness which filled our Lord's humanity, His sacred humanity. So, anything that was good in our Lord, He received by the, from the Holy Ghost, from God, from the divinity. So they wouldn't they wouldn't suffer any loss. Uh, but this Holy he would send into them Christ would no longer be present with them but his spirit would dwell in them you know in the Old Testament God was seen more as above us okay uh, the great and powerful God which of course he is be seen as above uh, in the incarnation God is dwells with us and he dwelt amongst them and now after the ascension after Pentecost God is meant to dwell in us as temples. So there is a progression of union above, with, and then in. And by leaving the world, Christ would be nearer his his disciples, closer to them, abiding in them. So you see there's a progression there of, 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 of intimacy. God doesn't want to be just above you. He doesn't want to be just beside you. He wants to dwell in your heart and soul. For if I go not, said our Savior, the paraclete will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. Why couldn't our Lord have remained on earth and send the Holy Ghost as well? Well, I think the answer is strictly speaking, he could have, but I think the problem was that the apostles were not properly disposed for the reception of the Holy Ghost. Their attachment to Christ's humanity was so great that it obscured their love of his divinity. They were, in a sense, too material, about, too earthly, and they had to become more spiritual. This is why our Lord said those seemingly cold words to Mary Magdalene, do not touch me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. And the same, she was so devoted to Christ, and she couldn't restrain her love for him. Obviously, her love for him was absolutely pure, but I agree with Father Vincent McNabb, a great Dominican spiritual writer. They said it, her love was probably too emotional you know, probably too human in a sense, not impure at all, of course, very holy. Um, But our Lord was saying to her, in other words, your devotion to me can no longer be like it used to be. You will no longer have me physically among you. Uh, You'll you'll no no longer be able to have my feet to anoint and bathe in your tears. But your love must be deeper for me, more spiritual. You must take me everywhere you go. I'm in your heart now not just beside you. I want to be in you, in your heart and soul. And I want you to adore me and worship me everywhere you go. And let me now live in you. I want to live in you and through you and work through you and do good to the world and sanctify the world through you. You're my temple now. And it was expedient in order to purify their faith and, and love that his visible bodily presence be taken from them. But it was only to be exchanged for a far more marvelous kind of presence. No longer would, you see, no longer would his presence be localized by his humanity, uh, limiting his presence to a single time and place and country and to a small group of people who had the privilege of physically being near him. Now he belongs, now, now our Lord belongs to all time and to all places and to all people, to all of us. And we have the ability to be so much closer to him now than were those shepherds adoring him at his nativity, closer than that sick woman who touched the hem of his garment, closer than Mary Magdalene when she washed his feet with her tears, closer than his disciples who walked with him and ate with him and stood at the foot of the cross. Because physical union and closeness, a mere physical touch doesn't, always mean an inward union of mind and heart and soul and desire. And that's what true love, that's what true love consists of, union of mind and heart and soul. And if Christ had continued his earthly, physical, invisible, and tangible life amongst us, the temptation would be that he would simply be an external example to be imitated outside of us somewhere in jerusalem and we would live in north america and we would have to oh it would be nice to see our lord someday um but if he went to his father and sent his spirit then he would be a life a life to be lived hmm. his life is transferred from merely being an historical fact an external example an external voice which we study with our mind and experience with our senses to the realm of a spiritual force and an interior strength which we live with and live by now he becomes the very life of our soul the spirit of our spirit as it were the truth in our mind if you have truth in your mind it is is really uh god holding that truth in your mind he is strengthening your will and the very he becomes the very love burning in our heart and ever since his glorious ascension into heaven and the descent of the holy ghost at Pentecost. All his followers, or in the state of grace, of course, can possess Christ interiorly so as to face life's hardships with our Lord's own strength and virtue. So we're not alone. We need not fight life's battles with merely our own strength. He is with us. And this is why St. Paul said that I live now, not I, but Christ lives in me and I glory in my infirmities so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. And for the saints, for the saints. Christ was their holiness. For the martyrs, Christ was not only the inspiration, the external inspiration in their suffering, but the interior strength that helped them to endure the heroic sacrifice of their lives. So really, spiritual progress is the perfecting or increasing this profound unity of mind and heart with Christ so that we think with him, uh, that we love with him, and we desire what he desires. So the spiritual life is really the life of Christ in us and through us, but it is due to the, the Holy Ghost that uh, that this uh, is affected in us. And then we come now to the, the mystery of the descent of the Holy Ghost, which this is all tied up in uh, the, well, Father, the mystery I could just of jump the
0: descent. In with, sure. If I could just jump in with one quick question. Um, uh, as you're saying that, I'm just thinking, would another... Way of saying what you're saying, uh, be that our, our Lord had to leave the earth physically for us to have uh, a personal relationship with Him, ver- versus uh, that a more uh, re- remote type of relationship. I just that's what came to my mind as you were saying. If you know, if He remained physically on Earth and He's off in Jerusalem, well, would that right. us prevent us from having that that personal relationship versus a you know the Muslim type of you know very right. remote type of relationship right. with uh, with their false god. I think psychologically it would have a
1: profound change on the whole spiritual life. I, I think uh, we would get to the point where um, God would be a distant God. Oh yeah, He's on Earth somewhere, but He's over there. He's way over there, and I was uh, you know I have to go to Him to speak to Him. But when, when physically that, that, that element of the, the bodily presence is removed, then we start realizing that, no, he hears me right now. I'm, I'm with him right now. I can speak to him right now. Uh, and he becomes um, a life force in a sense. And that's what, basically what the mystical body is that we share in the life of Christ, that literally uh, his, his, the lifeblood, in a sense of grace that flowed through him is now flowing through the members of his mystical body, um, that Christ is active in his members, uh, not just figuratively, but literally, uh, it's mystical. It, it's mystical and mysterious, but Christ is actually, uh, acting through us and in us and living in us. Uh, maybe not, um, uh, physically or bodily, like He's uh, not, uh, present in us, uh, body, blood, soul, and, div- and soul, uh, but, but his divinity is definitely affected in us, and, and the life of grace is in us. And uh, all the grace that he won for us uh, through his sacrifice and death is active in us um, after his ascension and the descent of the Holy Ghost. So I think, mm-hmm. I think it was a necessary thing, at least from the psychological point of view. Uh, I think, our, at least for now, because, uh, of course, in heaven, um, we're going to be with him uh, bodily on this life it was part of his plan that he depart from us uh and i think it was in order to become closer to us and i and i think in a in a, a natural example is is uh i'll use my own example of um uh when i was uh i think 12 uh my grandmother died and i was close to her my mother's mother uh and i and it saddened me of course when she died years after that i I, in a way i felt closer to her because now she was i believe i believe that she was saved i believe that uh, she lived a holy life i believe that i could uh, pray to her and in a sense she was closer to me now that she was only a prayer away and so it wasn't like now i have to go call someone i could speak to her i felt in prayer just like we pray to the saints now we can speak to them and we we know that uh, if they're listening, if God gives them that that ability to listen and to know our, our 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 prayers, which I think He does, of our loved ones, that they must know, they must perfectly understand us as well. Uh, that we don't have to go into a long speech explaining ourselves. They 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 know uh, what we mean when we pray and what is best for us, and they pray for us. Um, so I think in that sense it just uh there's a, there's a closer a closeness with our lord and and the what's interesting is that in the the early christians never felt uh, abandoned they never they had the sense after pentecost god was with them they did not feel uh, uh deprived of our lord's presence because he was still truly with them and they knew it but i think uh when we come to the mystery of the descent of the Holy Ghost upon Our Lady and the Apostles, um, it, it, the Apostles began the mission of converting the world to Christ. But Before they could effectively do that, they themselves had to be radically changed and interior transformed, interiorly transformed, and totally possessed by God. And our Lord Jesus Christ said that he had many things to teach them, but they were not ready to accept them Or they wouldn't even understand them until the descent of the Holy Ghost. And when the Holy Ghost descended upon them visibly in the form of fiery tongues, we see those scared, ignorant, and weak men totally and absolutely transformed into courageous, strong, heroically selfless men, totally and absolutely dedicated to our Lord, willing to give their lives, if need be, to follow Christ wherever he led them. And that was the tremendous work of the Holy Ghost. So the crowning work of the life, death, and resurrection, and ascension of our Lord, uh, really was this this sending of the Holy Ghost. He talked about this as being the crowning work. Um, uh, It was this new uh, outpouring of divine grace on humanity, upon the church, in such a way that compared to the outpouring of grace in the um, Old Testament, I mean, compared to the outpouring of grace in the New Testament, the Old Testament was comparatively empty of grace, comparatively speaking. Not entirely. There were just souls in the state of grace in the Old Testament, you know, uh, definitely saintly souls, all the just, uh, uh, they had to be in order to to be just. They they were in the state of grace, but it wasn't as great uh, as the New Testament. In the New Testament, after the uh, Passion and Death of Christ and the Ascension and the Pentecost, grace is so abundant in, in such a great a way that uh, St. John could say, grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Even though grace was present in the Old Testament, it was nothing compared to the outpouring in the New Testament. But all I, all of what I have said regarding um this, this new presence of our Lord within his disciples refers really to a moral presence, uh, a deeper influence inside their hearts and minds. Um, and this is true. Uh, but it's not quite all that we mean by the coming of the Holy Ghost upon the apostles. Because we, we, last episode we talked about divine grace, sanctifying grace. And we talked about it as being a supernatural life, the life of God infused into the soul at baptism and increased uh, throughout life by the sacraments and prayer. And, and grace makes us uh, to become partakers of the divine nature and that we are supernaturally adopted as children of God when we share God's own life. Um, that's really the effect of this coming of the Holy Ghost is, made, is, is to make us um, partakers of, this, uh, of the divine nature. But this sharing in his life, is not all there is as wonderful as that is it goes even farther you know sanctifying grace is a created thing it is a created modification of the soul affecting not only the soul's faculties because we're elevated we have charity now we have divine faith but it but it affects our very the very essence of the soul but sanctifying grace has another effect And this is where we get into the divine indwelling. It causes God to be present in the soul in an entirely new way. In a soul in sanctifying grace, God not only is present, but God is said to dwell in that soul as in a temple. So the effect of created sanctifying grace is that the uncreated source of grace is now present personally, immediately, physically, I use physically as opposed to merely morally present, physically present in the soul. And this is a real presence. A soul in sanctifying grace is not only a child of God, not only a partaker of the divine nature, as great as his privilege is, but a walking, breathing, living temple of the Holy Ghost himself. So when we talk about becoming the temples of the Holy Ghost, we're we're talking about a real personal presence of God in the souls of the just this is what the divine indwelling of the Holy Ghost means, and this is really the ultimate effect of, of the descent of the Holy Ghost upon the apostles. It's not just giving them gifts, and now they have the gift of tongues, and now they have the gift of miracles. Those are our uh, charisms that uh, temporarily assisted the church in the old Testament, I mean, in, in in the early years, uh, but the the heart uh, and the most important gift was this indwelling of the Holy Ghost himself and the gifts of the Holy Ghost, this whole divine organism, uh, supernatural life, not necessarily all the miracles and the charism, the speaking in tongues, all those things are not as great uh, as this, this fact, this wonderful fact that we become temples of the Holy Ghost. This sending of the Holy Ghost is referred to as the mission of the Holy Ghost and more specifically in regard to the sanctification of the just it's called the internal mission of the Holy Ghost Uh, but this work of sanctifying I wanted to say this here to explain that this work of sanctifying is ascribed to the third person of the Holy Trinity whereas the theological term uh, that is normally used uh, puts it um, The work of sanctification is appropriated to the Holy Ghost, although it is a work of the entire Holy Trinity. And I just want us to keep this in mind. Everything done in creation and to creation by God, everything outside of the inner life of the Holy Trinity is the united work of the entire Holy Trinity, Uh, because there's only one divine will, one divine power in God. So when God works. On creation in some way to perform some effect on creation it is it is the Holy Trinity working um, just but sometimes in theology we have to appropriate certain effects to a person beca- to a specific divine person because it is more appropriate in a sense because of the very nature or that personality of that divine person for, for example um, uh, we, uh, the work of creation, for example, is appropriated to God the Father, because He is the principle uh, of the Holy Trinity. He is the source, as it were, of of the the, the Son and the Holy Ghost. He is the unbegotten one, the the uh, which we call Him the the Creator. Even though the Son created the whole world, the Holy Ghost is also the Creator. It's common to the whole. Uh, holy trinity and the similarly in the same way the work of sanctification although it is the work of the entire holy trinity is appropriated to the third person of the trinity the holy ghost and this is because the work of sanctification of the elect is primarily a work of love and so it is attributed to him who is personally the infinite love of god he has love personified he is called the holy ghost or the holy spirit because holiness is essentially the love of the supreme good and god is that supreme good so the holy ghost and i, I mentioned this in the, in the episode we had on the holy trinity he is the bond of love between the father and the son he is god loving that which is worthy of infinite love and that god, only god is worthy of that so and we participate in the holiness of the holy ghost when we love what he loves the supreme good above all things so when we're in the state of grace we do love god above all things uh there's degrees to that love but essentially we love the supreme good or else we would not be in the state of grace and the holy ghost he who is charity itself is the source of that charity within the just soul And that charity is the bond of perfection between us and God. It's what binds the soul to God. And therefore, it is most appropriate that the work of sanctification is called the work of the Holy Ghost. But I just wanted us to keep in mind that when we're talking of the divine indwelling of the Holy Ghost, we can just as accurately say the divine indwelling of the Holy Trinity. So sometimes, sometimes I will say... The Holy Trinity, dwelling in the souls of the just or the Holy Ghost. It's the same thing. The Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost are all present in the soul in the state of grace. When at, wherever one divine person is, all three must be present as well and operating in that soul equally. So I'll use both terms. And I just want to, um, just to back that up, just to show that uh, this, is, this is true, uh, i quote St. Thomas. He says, the union accomplished by the grace of adoption is common to the three persons, both in its principle and its term. And even more clearly, St. John Chrysostom says, the Holy Ghost cannot be present unless Christ is present also. Wherever one of the persons of the Trinity is present, there is the Trinity. There can be no separation in the Trinity. It is perfectly united, Unquote. And when he referred to Christ, he wasn't talking about his sacred humanity, but being the divine word. Now, I wanted to turn to um, talk more about this divine indwelling, but I just want to establish the fact of it. Uh, it is a truth of our faith that the Holy Ghost dwells in the souls of the just and souls that are in the state of grace. This is a fundamental truth of Christianity, one of the most touching dogmas of the Catholic religion. And I think, I, I think one that is most conducive to piety and the spiritual life. Um, so I think the most important point of this whole episode is that I want our listeners to be reminded of this great truth, first of all, that they reflect on it, uh, that it is a fact, a truth of our faith. And then afterwards, after we established this fact, I, we want, I wanted to uh, talk about what the indwelling means a little bit more and, and how, how and why, the how and why of this mystery. Um, we will never totally understand how, uh, but theology does shed some light on the mystery, I think. And, but for now, the important thing is just to let it sink in, that the Holy Ghost is given to the soul in grace. The soul becomes a living temple of God. And so I just wanted to establish this fact by some authoritative quotes from Scripture and the saints and theologians. First, from from Scripture. Uh, St. Paul especially talks about this. St. Paul in um, 1 Corinthians, he says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone destroys the temple of God, him God will destroy. For holy is the temple of God. And this temple, you are. And a little later, he says, Know you not that your members are the temple of the Holy Ghost, and you are not your own? Glorify and bear God in your body. And to the Romans, he says, You have not received the spirit of bondage again in fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption of sons, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. For the Spirit himself gives a testimony to our spirit that we are the sons of God. And a little, uh, also from Romans, he said, Hope confoundeth not, because the charity of God is poured forth in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, who is given to us. And notice St. Paul in in this passage, he says, He makes a distinction between the charity that God gives us and the Holy Ghost, who is also given to us. Because the charity of God is poured forth in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, who is given to us. So sanctifying grace and divine charity is not the Holy Ghost himself. They are created effects in the soul. But wherever these effects are, the Holy Ghost is also personally and immediately present. And another uh, uh, passage from St. Paul to Second Timothy. In 2 Timothy, he says, Guard the good trust through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Then we turn to St. John the Apostle. He says, quote, If we love one another, God abides in us. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. And thus, from this passage, we can see that God's indwelling is the privilege of those who have the faith have the true faith in Christ, and to have charity. Charity is the key here. Without the supernatural love of God, God does not dwell in you as a temple. We need charity. Our Lord uh, himself in many places, especially the Last Supper, he speaks of the close union between himself and his disciples, particularly after the descent of the Holy Ghost. And he speaks about this at the Last Supper, but I'll, that quote will come a little later. Right now, I just wanted to quote from our Lord, um, from the Gospel of St. John. He says, if anyone love me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. So notice our Lord here didn't explicitly refer to the Holy Ghost, but only to himself and the Father. The Father and he will dwell and abide in the soul that loves God, that obeys his commandments. In other words, in the soul that has the divine virtue of charity. So obviously our Lord wasn't excluding the Holy Ghost. He just didn't explicitly mention him at that time. So scripture shows us that uh, when a soul is in a state of grace, the Holy Ghost dwells in that soul, but not the Holy Ghost alone. The Father and the Son are also there. And this is why in the early Christians, uh, principally St. Ignatius of Antioch, who was a contemporary of St. John the Apostle, St. Ignatius died in 107 AD. Uh, and he often referred to himself and to all Christians, this was a common thing at the time, as theophores, or christophores, which means God-bearers christ bearers this was a common expression that we bear god within us um, if we look at some of the other uh, uh fathers of the church um, you know we could dig up many many quotes i just have a few here just to show that this is it's, it's it was something that very common in the early ages this was something very dear um, in the early ages of the church saint cyril of alexandria Uh, proved the divinity of the Holy Ghost against the Macedonian heretics precisely by referring to this well-known doctrine of the soul and grace being the temple of God and remember last uh, episode we talked about uh, sanctifying grace and that some of the fathers actually used uh, this well-known fact that sanctifying grace makes you a partaker of the divine nature they prove the divinity of the Holy Ghost because from that fact no one ever denied In the early church that grace makes you a partaker of the of the divine nature so the fathers of the church could use that as a stepping stone to prove the divinity of the holy ghost because we know that the holy ghost sanctifies us and so we know the holy ghost makes us the temple of god Um, so obviously he has to be god this is what saint cyril wrote no one of sound mind can doubt that the spirit is god and one with the father and the son in nature if anyone denies it let them tell us how Man can participate in the nature of God by very reason of the fact that he has received the Spirit, or how we become temples of God by receiving a Spirit who is not God, So in other words, the effect cannot be greater than the cause. Um, If if we are made true temples of God, the Holy Ghost has to be God. But see, this was just a fact that we are truly temples of God. This is something that they all took for granted. We have a a nice quote from uh, St. Bernard. He said, do you wish to penetrate that holy and sacred sanctuary where one may see the sun? Do you wish to dwell with the adorable Trinity? Open your heart, for it enshrines the eternal. St. Bonaventure says this, the Holy Spirit gives himself to us both in his own person and in the created gift of grace. So he is personally present. St. Thomas Aquinas says this, quote, God is said to dwell spiritually as in his intimate habitation in the saints whose souls are capable of possessing him by knowledge and of delighting in him through love, even when they are not actively knowing and loving, providing, provided that through grace they have the habits of faith and charity, as is evident in the case of infants that have been baptized. And here I, I wanted to quote um, from Archbishop James Lean. He was the brother of uh, Father Edward Lean. Uh, this is from his book by Jacob's Well, uh, where he talks about the indwelling of the Holy Ghost. In fact, he has a whole chapter on it. And he refers to a well-known passage of St. Teresa of Avila in her personal experience. So this quote is, is from Archbishop James Lean, but he refers to St. Teresa of Avila. Quote, the following avowal is found in the life of St. Teresa as written by herself. And quoting St. Teresa, she, he says, <clears throat> she says, At the outset, I was not aware that God is in very truth in all creatures. It appeared to me that such an intimate presence was unthinkable. But on the other hand, it was utterly impossible for me not to believe that he was there in my inmost being. The experimental proof of his presence imposed conviction on me. I was told by persons who were but poorly enlightened that he was in the soul only in as much as grace was there. They could not persuade me that this was so, for I repeat, it was clear to me that he was present within me in person. This conflict between what I experienced and what I was told caused me great distress. This endured until a learned Dominican set all my fears at rest and dispelled all my doubts. He informed me that God was truly within me, and enfolded me uh, and, and, and unfolded to me the mode of this presence. His explanation brought me immense consolation. And that is the, the end of the quote of saint, from Saint. Teresa. and Archbishop James Dean continues, "This ignorance of the special, real and substantial presence of God in the soul when in the state of grace, to which the great saint of Avila makes allusion." is only too common amongst the faithful. And yet this union with God, which results from the indwelling of His Holy Spirit in us, is the unique object of our existence. It is for this alone that we have been created and have been redeemed. No other purpose, whatever, can be assigned to our life's effort. It is much to be regretted, then, that ideas about this central, pivotal dogma, a dogma upon which the whole supernatural system turns and from which that system draws meaning and coherence, are so vague. Is it not because of this vagueness that much genuine spiritual effort resembles the movements of a noble ship tossing about, rudderless and without direction on the bosom of the waters? There is a good deal of movement, but nothing that can be called progress." So St. Teresa of Avila here uh, seems to be talking about the omnipresence, but she was really referring to the the presence of God uh, in sanctifying grace. And talking to certain people, uh, maybe even perhaps some priests that didn't understand their theology, uh, she was told, no, no, God's present in a a moral sense that he works in you, he gives you graces and stuff like that, but he's not personally present. Uh, He works, uh, he's in you working in you, stuff like, to that effect. And then when she was able to uh, talk to a Dominican who was well-versed in theology, or just actually basic theology, this is basic theology, but a, a learned Dominican set her fears uh, to rest because she said, no, no, he literally and personally dwells in the soul. So St. Teresa of Avila was mystically experiencing this presence of God, and theology always backs up experience. And vice versa. Her experience as a true mystic backed up a dogma that God must be present personally. And in fact, that is the truth. And I just wanted to quote one more spiritual writer, not a very well-known one, uh Father Dooley. He says, The process of justification reaches its climax in the personal indwelling of the Holy Ghost in the soul of the just. So the sum total of this astounding truth is this: God is in me. And i am in god pause for a moment and let its beauty sink deep into your mind and heart unquote there's many other quotes that could be dug up to show this fundamental truth but i think that's enough um so that this is that's the fact we're talking about the fact and now we can talk a little bit about the how and why and speculate a little bit and uh and then see how it the meaning for our spiritual life which Really should be obvious, but we'll, we'll talk about some of them, uh, um, uh, reflect uh, this meaning on, on the spiritual life. So we'll talk now um, a little bit about uh, the how. Um, what exactly is this divine indwelling? And these are more difficult questions, in a sense, compared to the bare fact of this truth. Uh, but it is possible, I think, to shed a little bit more light on this topic that uh, that is edifying, I think. Um, the question I think that naturally arises uh, to the mind is how is this divine indwelling different from God's omnipresence isn't God already everywhere you know we learn this from the catechism from our youth where we're asked where is God God is everywhere and this is what we call God's omnipresence and this is a tremendous truth A truth that we should reflect upon often but it is a truth not in competition with the divine indwelling nor is neither of these presences in competition with the real presence of jesus christ in the blessed sacrament and i want to explain each of these presences so i'll start with with uh god's omnipresence and show how that's why that's necessary and it is an important truth and then this divine indwelling And and I'll I'll talk a little bit briefly about its relationship to the Blessed Sacrament. Um, First of all, God's omnipresence. God is everywhere. Pope Pius X, when he was a little boy uh, in school, his teacher said to the class, "I will give an apple to anyone who tells me where God is." And little Giuseppe Sarto Pius X he replied. I will give two apples if you tell me where he's not. And I think that's a good answer. And we sometimes forget this truth of God's omnipresence, so we downplay it. But it is a, it's a very touching truth of our faith. Um, and and uh, something that I believe um, we'll talk about again in the future when we discuss uh, Divine Providence is uh i think essential for our peace of soul um but i just wanted to explain his omnipresence right now and where this is different from his divine indwelling so since god made all things out of nothing all things every last atom of the universe he made it out of nothing so god must continue to be upheld by god or everything every atom must continue to be upheld by god from moment to moment or it would sink back into its original nothingness why is this when you have after a carpenter builds uh, a chair or or a table he can leave it he can leave that chair and he can go do other things and that chair will not cease to exist it will stay there it will remain itself It retains its shape and its form because of the material out of which it was made. It was wood. But if the creator left his creation, or even left that piece of wood, a piece of his handiwork, it would simply cease to exist. Because then it would have to depend upon the material which he used in making it. And what was that material? Nothing. There was no material. There's nothing to fall back on. He created it from nothing and he made the whole universe and every atom in it every being completely and absolutely from nothing so everything that exists only exists because he wills it to exist everything absolutely depends upon him just as my image in the mirror depends upon me standing in front of the mirror if i leave if i go it will go. It won't stay there anymore. As my image is my reflection in a mirror, say if I was standing in front of a mirror, so creatures are a limited reflection of God's beauty and existence. And so if God were to leave for one second, it would sink to nothing. And I think this analogy of of, uh, a reflection in the mirror is 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 a useful analogy because it shows us just like that reflection of myself in the mirror is not part of me it's dependent upon me but it's not part of me so creation is not a part of god as the buddhists or pantheists believe creation and the creator are distinct and yet creatures are intimately dependent upon god take god away and the universe ceases and so in reality creation is not something that is over and done with it is not something that just happened. It is happening as we speak. God not only created the universe, but he conserves it in a sense. in, In a sense, he's creating it over and over from moment to moment, sustaining it in existence. And now we look at God. He is a spirit. A spirit is beyond space. It's a spirit cannot be contained in a place as water is in a cup rather a spirit is where it acts a spirit is where something receives the effect of its power the human soul is is a spirit okay it is everywhere in the body everywhere because it gives life to every part of the body and yet the soul has no parts it's not spread out in space it's not as big as the body it it transcends Uh, the need for space and yet it has its effects everywhere in the body now god is everywhere in every being in every part of the universe in men in angels every atom in everything that exists because he must act there he has to act there he has to uphold it completely and entirely in the depths of its being he must be everywhere by his power and this is why saint paul said that God is not far from every one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. So his presence in all things is closer than close, closer than the dye is to the wool, or or a rose's color is to the rose, or light is to the air. He's nearer to us than our own hands and feet, our own breathing, our own thinking. He's more intimate than our very soul is to our body. We are, in a sense, bathed in God and saturated with his, with his presence, like a sponge in the ocean. He penetrates to the depths and the center of our being, and he knows the most innermost thoughts, infinitely more perfect than we, we could ever, we ever could. We cannot escape God's presence, nor, nor should we want to, because he's the source of all our being and all our happiness. And let me just quote quickly uh, Father Lean on this point. He says, Again, I'll just mostly repeat what I said, but again, it's as an authority to back up what I said. He said, quote, things demand not only to be created by God, they require as well to be maintained in being by His sustaining power. That continued conservation is a kind of prolonged creation. Creatures do not receive their existence as it were all at once. It is doled out to them moment by moment. Now this holding up is not when we hold up things in our hand through our external contact with them. God does not hold things superficially and sustain them in that way. He holds things in existence by being in their very inmost depths, giving them not only their nature and their natural existence, but in addition, every movement of energy that they put forth. He not only gives them being, he gives them action as well. He is more intimate to each form of reality than it is to itself. He is in the depths of the rose, making it to exist as that particular kind of rose. He is in the colors of the rose leaves, imparting to them the living brilliancy of their hues. He is in in the depths of man's soul. He is in every interior and exterior act. He is in man's thoughts, reasonings, and decisions. What is more... Man has to draw on God for the very energy he puts forth in the very act of sin. God's power is ever actively engaged in this work of conservation with regard to every form of reality, unquote. So we see God's action. It's everywhere. We, we, Since our existence depends on God, even the actions we do depend on God. They're totally dependent and contingent. We wouldn't have, I wouldn't have the energy to... To be speaking right now if god did not give that to me i wouldn't have the energy to raise my hand if god did not give that to me so god has to be where he's acting and he's acting everywhere but again his presence he's not a spirit i mean he's not a material being he's a spirit and a spirit transcends he transcends uh, space and time so he's not spread out Uh, Over the universe. He's not big or small. He is infinite. He transcends space. He is present everywhere in the universe, and yet he's not more in one place and in the next, in the sense that he is uh, materially spread out. Okay? So, but he is present everywhere. And even Father Lean mentioned, uh, um, I wanted to explain this point that even in our sins, Uh, We couldn't physically do something, say if you were going to fire a gun and murder someone, you could not pull that trigger unless God uh, was uh, giving you the energy to do that. But God is not approving of the moral uh, ramifications, the moral side of that act. But you could not physically do that unless God was allowing you to and giving you that energy. You are guilty of the moral act. Uh, but you are dependent uh, completely upon upon uh, your being and your action as well, so now I, I know i 'm kind of hammering on the subject of god's omnipresence and continual action upon creation, but I do this for two reasons: I think it's a very important uh, it's, an, it's a very important source of peace of soul and the spiritual life because first of all, God is not a distant God. He is closer to to us than we are to ourselves. And he reads our hearts perfectly and infallibly because he's holding our heart in existence. He knows what's in our mind because it wouldn't be there unless he's holding it in existence. So he knows it better than we do. And that's an important point that we'll refer to when we talk about interior prayer, Um, uh, that he reads your heart. You speak to him as a spirit to a spirit. Uh, That's really what contemplation is which we'll get into one of these episodes, but also I am hammering this issue because from this truth of God's omnipresence, it logically flows the truth of divine providence. If all creation depends upon God for its existence, it also depends upon him for its activity, and therefore nothing happens in the world except God allows it to happen, and he only allows anything any evil in this world for a greater good he is in complete control and this is so important for the spiritual life ultimately uh everything everything that happens to us and around us is part of divine providence uh and that's such a uh, an important point for the spiritual life um it's probably will be the ap- uh topic uh, for the next episode i find it uh, one of the most important uh, topics for the spiritual life, for, for peace of soul and progress in the spiritual life. Um, but now, when we come to the divine indwelling, the natural question is what's the difference between this indwelling of, the, of God in the souls of the just and the presence of God in all creation? Isn't God already in the soul by the mere fact of creation? And yes, God is truly in every soul, holding it in existence, every body holding it in existence, as he is truly present in every particle of creation. He's holding it in existence. But this new presence, which we call the indwelling, is not that God was not present before, but that he is present in a new way to the soul. God has taken up a new role in that soul. Something is being done to that soul that's different. So the sending of the Holy Ghost doesn't mean that he wasn't already present in all of creation, but he was sent on a mission and that he took up a new role in the soul, in grace. And this is what we call the internal mission of the Holy Ghost. Let me quote St. Thomas Aquinas on this. He said, quote, A divine person is capable of being sent insofar as he exists in someone in a new way and of being given insofar as he has had, that is, held or possessed by someone. And it is sanctifying grace that accounts for both these results. Hence, it is by reason of sanctifying grace that a a divine person is sent or temporarily proceeds. Hence, the Holy Ghost is given and and sent." So when we have the descent of the Holy Ghost, we mustn't imagine that, that the Holy Ghost was already present, at least by, the power, uh, by virtue of his omnipresence. But yet his role uh, in the soul is unique afterwards in the soul and grace. Father Edward Lean says this, he explains it. The Holy Ghost does not need to come to men's souls because he is there already in virtue of the divine omnipresence. But, as St. Thomas says, quote, a divine person is capable of being sent insofar as he exists in someone in a new way. The Holy Spirit is always in the soul, but when this latter has been justified in the blood of Christ, he begins to exist there in a manner entirely different from the former manner. He is now there as the divine envoy. Having been already in the kingdom of the soul, he now takes up new functions there. He is invested by God the Father with the role of ambassador to the court of man's soul, So it's almost like I've heard uh, this example used, is that if... um, uh, um, we were visiting uh, China, for example, and say uh, the uh, our um, president or prime minister were in Canada. Here, the prime minister contacted us and said, "I want you to be the ambassador to China. I'm sending you to China with that official role as ambassador, uh, as representative of Canada or the representative of the United States. Um, so you would be already present." But now you are sent under a new capacity. It'd be like he is sending you, even though you are already there. So this is what he's talking about. And notice St. Thomas says here that it is by reason of sanctifying grace. And that is the key, that the Holy Ghost is present in a new way. The reason for the indwelling is that when a soul in sanctifying grace, uh, that soul is not only affected by God, but now is able to react to God's omnipresence. Um, And I I, I wanted to talk about this just briefly here. A, um, A soul in sanctifying grace has the virtue of charity. We know that, the love of God. And this love is called the bond of perfection. But this charity gives us the ability, in a sense, to embrace God. And it causes God to be present in a new way. So all the change is in the soul, not in God. God doesn't change. But creatures can change and they do change and just for example god is present in hell but the souls in hell are not aware of it and they don't enjoy his presence and yet he is present there holding them in existence and so in a similar way the the change is not in god but in the creature the soul in sanctifying grace in a sense in a sense hugs god By charity, uh, it it causes our Lord uh, our Lord God to be present in a new way. And that's what causes this new uh, term, indwelling. He was present before, but now he dwells in the soul. Let me just quote Father Lean, Edward Lean on this point. Quote, the soul is not merely a passive recipient of God's action. He does not receive it as the marble receives the stroke of the sculptor's chisel. He develops a vitality of a supernatural kind as God's work on it progresses. It reacts to the action of God. It develops life under that divine action. Habitual grace gives the soul a power of reaction, which makes it capable of holding God vitally, of possessing him, of having him as its own. It is not in virtue of the action of God, but of the consequent reaction of the soul, that the latter is made the temple of God. Unquote. Father Lean, in a footnote, he compares the soul and grace almost uh, uh, almost to like the Venus flytrap. He says, Divine grace endows the soul with a quality which bears an analogy to that virtue or that power in the flower which enables it to envelop the foreign elements in the embrace of its petals. Grace enables the soul to enfold the Holy Ghost in its embrace. And St. Thomas says something similar to this. So when we have the virtue of charity which always comes with divine grace, God uh, is made to be present there in a new way. God's presence in all of creation is is like when a stranger is in your house and you don't even know it. You know, that stranger could be, he could be living in your closet. But you would never say that that person dwells in your house. It's not his house, in a sense. Uh, But when you acknowledge him, When he is part of your family, then he dwells there. So it's a difference in a sense that, yes, God is present in a rock, but that rock has no reaction to God, has no awareness of God's presence. There's nothing um, holding him there in a sense that he dwells there. He's simply present. But in a soul in sanctifying grace, God is not only present with that soul, he's present to that soul. And I hope that, that makes sense. So in a sense, that soul reacts to God and, and embraces him. Uh, but there's another way to look at this uh, in dwelling. Uh, when God is present in all of creation, he's giving all beings their existence. we talked about that. all perfections found in creation. He has to communicate being and energy and perfection to creatures. But we notice in the world that some creatures are more perfect than others. Some have a greater perfection than others. A plant for example, is more perfect than a rock because a plant is living and a rock is not living. So life is a profound perfection. Animal life is far more perfect form of life than vegetative life. And the animal shares in a greater way uh, that perfection of life that is found in God. God gives more life to an animal than to a plant. And he he gives uh, a far greater kind of life to a human being who has a, a, a rational spiritual soul with an intellect and free will so he gives more and more perfection more and more uh, share in his perfection uh, the, the the higher we go in the chain of life and father lean says this quote now this universal presence though of the same nature in all things is not in all respects the same it admits of a limitless variety of degrees though fully present to all God can be present in things to a greater or less extent. He is more intimately present where his operation is more potent and attains the higher effects in the order of being. He is more deeply present in those effects which reflect more perfectly his perfections. The greater the output of divine energy, the closer the presence. One is in direct proportion to the other." So when we come to a soul in sanctifying grace, where we're made partaker of the very nature of God, God is communicating himself to that soul in a far more profound way than he does to any other creature in the whole universe in the natural order. Um, And since he is affecting that change in the soul, he has to be present in a very special and supernatural way.
0: Well, Father, I have a, a question, that, and I hope I'm not jumping ahead of anything here, but it occurs to me as uh, we're discussing um, uh, the Omnipresence and then this special indwelling of the Holy Ghost in the soul that's distinct from that, uh, the question right. comes to my mind is, why do we need to go to Mass, then, and receive okay. our Lord in the Eucharist? Okay. Okay. Um. I'm going to talk about
1: that just in a, in, a, in a little bit. I wanted to talk just a little bit about this divine indwelling, but yes, that is a good point um, uh, because I've heard in the past some people, uh, they, they kind of downplay this divine indwelling uh, because they think it's a threat to the Holy Eucharist, and that's not the case at all, and I'll talk about that in a minute, but I do want to uh, um, just just uh, talk a little bit more about this divine indwelling and the participation in, in the life of the Holy Trinity, which this, this uh, uh, allows us to enjoy. Um, so I was talking about, which I'll get to your question in, in a minute, Nicholas. Um, when we come to a soul in sanctifying grace, God is communicating a, a greater perfection than all of creation. And when you think of it that a little bit of grace is a more valuable it's a more value than all of creation and i wasn't the first to say this. saint thomas says this as well and i just wanted to quote father lean on this he says now in in infusing grace into the soul god is producing an effect of a kind infinitely superior to anything he causes in the order of nature saint thomas assures us that the grace of a single individual surpasses in worth the natural good of the whole material universe Unquote. So basically, when you have a little child that has just been baptized and infused with sanctifying grace and has become an adopted child of God and a partaker of the divine nature, that little child, obviously, supernaturally speaking, is of more value than the whole universe and all natural creation. That child is literally priceless. Of course, every child is. But even more from a natural point of view, uh, an ounce of grace is worth a billion pounds of nature, as it were. Uh, uh, this grace that what God has done to that soul is more um, wondrous. Even though we don't see it with our eyes, we will see it in the next life. That little child is a son of God, or a daughter of God, a child of God. Uh, That is a greater work than the creation of the entire universe. It takes more to sanctify, more of God's energy and love, to sanctify that soul than it does when he created the whole universe so in a soul in grace God's not inactive uh, he's um, uh, he, he's not only holding that soul in existence like he does all other beings in creation but now he's bestowing supernatural life from moment to moment and he makes that soul so godlike that it reflects God not only as an artist but as the Trinity itself. And when when a painter uh, paints beautiful scenery, for example, or or uh, fruit or whatever, that painting reflects something beautiful in the artist's mind. Uh, but any such painting doesn't really reveal the artist himself. It reveals his skill, but not his person, except very vaguely. doesn't really reveal the man. Now, suppose that artist does a self-portrait that is... Given life and now it not only reflects him more perfectly than any other kind of painting but it's alive so somewhat in that sense in a soul and grace it is the living image of God Um, but of course God has to uphold this new life this divine life from moment to moment and wherever God is acting he has to personally be so grace is distinct from God but it's inseparable from Him. Grace and God's presence go together. Wherever grace is, God has to be supernaturally there. And He gives Himself to the soul in grace. And this is what our Lord really said at the Last Supper. When you think of, no theologian would ever have dared to say this were it not for the sublime words of Christ at the Last Supper. And I wanted to get to this quote of our Lord now it makes sense why he said these things. Um he said Yet not for these only do I pray, but for those also who through their word shall believe in me, that all may be one, even as th- thou Father, in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me, and the glory which thou hast given me I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and thou and me that they may be perfected in unity and that the world may know that thou has sent me that thou has loved me love them even as thou hast loved me so you see this this um uh we are and we are adopted children of god uh we are we share in a sense we have a a a, a um, our generation from God, our spiritual regeneration as sons of God, is somewhat similar to uh, the Son's generation from the Father, that we share uh, the divine nature with God, that the Son lives by the Father and we live by participation in God. He is in the Father and the Father is in Him. We are we are also in God. And God is in us, and I think this is a beautiful uh explanation uh, I, I I think if we don't understand the divine indwelling if that's not part of our our mental landscape and that we, we we uh refer to it and think about it, many of the things that our Lord spoke about in the gospels will I think will seem to us exaggeration you know I am in you, you and me we're in I am in the Father, the Father is in me. We understand that our Lord's um, closeness, the union that He is aiming at between Himself and the members of His mystical body, is literally so close. It's a divine indwelling. I wanted to, and then we can move on now to your question uh, in regard to the Blessed Sacrament. Um, there is a theologian, uh, Father Royal. Uh, a Dominican, a Spanish-Dominican. He, he, wrote, he wrote this in uh, uh, 1955, it was translated in 62, but uh, originally in his book The Theology of Christian Perfection. Uh, he said something about the Blessed Sacrament that I wanted to refer to, and then I'll explain it. He said, quote, When we say that God dwells in our souls, as in his temple, we are expressing a truth which is supported by two famous passages of St. Paul. But we must take care not to imagine that God's presence in us is like that of the Eucharist in the- ta- in the tabernacle, inert and with only a spatial relationship to the tabernacle. The presence of God in the just soul is infinitely superior to this. We are living temples of God, and we possess the three persons in a vital manner Unquote. now, I think that what he talked about in uh uh, of our lord's presence in the blessed sacrament um might shock some of our listeners because he he spoke of it as a more as a um infinitely superior type of presence what he means is that he's not downplaying the blessed sacrament that's not the case at all he was simply saying that we mustn't imagine god's presence in our soul as as something like carrying around a precious jewel in a container. It's not like that. It's not something like that. It it isn't even like the ciborium in the tabernacle, he said. Uh, The tabernacle itself is not changed. It's not alive with God's presence. It's not affected by the presence of the Holy Eucharist. So we mustn't imagine it like that. It's more of a living. uh, That's why we use the term living temple. Um, Now you talked about the Blessed Sacrament. Uh, I think it is possible for someone to get the erroneous idea that this divine indwelling in the soul of the just will naturally or eventually downplay our Lord's real presence in the Holy Eucharist. If God is already dwelling in every soul in the state of grace, people might say, then why do we need the Blessed Sacrament? Doesn't it make the Blessed Sacrament superfluous? But this is a totally wrong view of things. These two presences are not in competition. They're complementary, but they don't compete with each other. Uh, I think, first of all, I think the problem is is the Blessed Sacrament was not always reserved in tabernacles. I I think that began sometime in the Middle Ages. Uh, Unfortunately, I think Catholics can misunderstand why our Lord is reserved in the tabernacle and the whole purpose of Holy Communion considered in the big picture. What I mean is this it is erroneous to think that God is only in the church, only localized in the tabernacle. That is not Catholic doctrine. Uh, Catholic doctrine is that God's omnipresent, that God dwells in the souls in the state of of grace as living temples. Um, uh, Now when we come to the Blessed Sacrament, the uniqueness of this presence is that our Lord Jesus Christ is present there in his sacred humanity, body, blood, soul and divinity in that tabernacle he is only present in that sense in two places in heaven and in the host in the blessed sacrament and, and of course in the precious blood as well at mass um, so our lord is not present in all of creation bodily in his sacred humanity so but in his divinity he is there although god is present in all of creation he is not Now, this is another point that I wanted to bring up, is that God is not present in all of creation, Um, excuse me, I didn't, uh, what I mean is God is present in all of creation, but he's not hypostatically united, personally united to all of creation and to any creature except the sacred humanity of the Word, incarnate. And this sacred humanity of our Lord is present in heaven and is present in the Blessed Sacrament. So although the divine word, the divinity of our Lord, is present everywhere, we cannot point to anything and say, that is Jesus Christ. We can only point to his sacred humanity and say, that is Jesus Christ. We can point to the blessed sacrament and say, God not only is present there, but that is God personally. And that is the difference. God is in a rock, but I can't point to that rock and say, that is God. No, that's a rock. God is present there, but God is not hypostatically united to that rock, personally united to that rock. He's present, but he's not that rock. Now, when we come to Jesus Christ, the Word incarnate, while he walked on this earth, in his divinity, he was present everywhere in creation. He was upholding his sacred humanity and existence. But when we point to that that sacred humanity that man and say that is god that is the second person of the holy trinity okay that's the distinction that now in the blessed sacrament we have personally god himself personally that we can point to that and say that is jesus christ and when i worship that host i am worshiping the second person of the holy trinity and in fact the whole the entire holy trinity uh who is also present in that host. Because remember, wherever one person is, the other two divine persons are also present. Uh, But when we say who is in the Blessed Sacrament, we say the second person of the Holy Trinity. Now, the important thing to remember is that the Blessed Sacrament is a sacrament. And we learn from the Catechism that a sacrament is a sign or a means rather instituted by Christ to give grace. So that means when we go to Communion, it is to increase sanctifying grace. And what does grace give us? A greater share in the divine nature and a more perfect union with the Holy Trinity, which dwells in us. A sacrament is a means to an end, to a greater union with God on earth and ultimately in heaven. So these two presences uh, are not in competition, but complementary. Our Lord's sacred humanity is the great instrument of sanctification. Our Lord Jesus Christ in His humanity is the unique way to the Father, and we need Him. But His humanity is the means, not the end. It is the way, and not the end. It is the divinity which He wants us to unite us to, through His humanity. So that the presence of God and the divine indwelling through grace is meant to be permanent, and only comes to an end through sin on the part of the individual. And the Eucharistic presence, on the contrary, is transitory, and it comes to an end when the sacred species is dissolved. When the sacred species is dissolved, the Lord's humanity is no longer present in you, his body and uh, blood and soul, but his divinity remains, and hopefully a greater union with the Holy Trinity results. So the Blessed Sacrament is still the means um, uh, of increasing this divine indwelling. It's a means of grace. Does that make sense, Nicholas? Uh,
0: yes. And if, well, would it be correct or accurate to say that uh, another way of looking at the difference is um, when we speak of God's omnipresence and his presence in the soul, that's the spiritual presence, and in the Eucharist you have the spiritual and the physical, and that physical is the difference?
1: Um, I wouldn't use the term physical necessarily, but bodily, perhaps, uh, um, or bodily. Um, I think it is more in reference to our Lord's sacred humanity as being the instrument. So um, they often refer to even the divine indwelling as a physical presence, uh, not bodily, but it is it, because it is a real presence as well. So I think it has more in reference to our Lord's sacred humanity. His sacred humanity is not present everywhere. It's only present in the blessed sacrament, but that is the unique means, that is our spiritual nourishment, his body and blood, is the spiritual nourishment uh, to increase this union with God and the divine indwelling. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, um, but the presence of the divine indwelling is as real as the Eucharistic presence, and when we when we reserve the term real presence for the Holy Eucharist, it doesn't mean that God is not really present in his omnipresence or in his divine indwelling. We use the term real presence for the Holy Eucharist not to oppose the divine indwelling through grace, but to oppose the uh, the Protestant error that Christ's body and blood is only symbolically and figuratively present in Holy Communion. Okay? So basically... The divine indwelling doesn't make the blessed sacrament superfluous. The whole purpose of the blessed sacrament is to increase this divine indwelling. It is a sacrament, a means. When we go to heaven, we won't have communion anymore. But you will have this divine indwelling. And hopefully it will be very intense and great because you've made use of the means of grace, which is primarily the blessed sacrament and Holy Communion. So they're not in competition, but complementary. Okay? Mm-hmm. So um, that may be a, a new way of looking at things for many people, uh, but we do have to get out of this view that uh, um, that God is only in the church. I know that may sound uh, modernist, but it's it's traditional that God. Uh, this we have to keep in mind this divine indwelling that we come to church because Jesus Christ in His humanity is the principal means of our union with God. It is the, the, the great nourishment for our soul, is Jesus present in the Blessed Sacrament. And we can come to church and speak to him present there in his humanity. Um, and we receive him as our spiritual food. But it is in order to increase sanctifying grace in our soul and this divine indwelling so that God is more perfectly uh, um, in possession of us, that we grow in his love. So you see in everything in our holy religion, All the sacraments, the mass, benediction, uh, rosaries, scapulars, chaplets, novenas, uh, prayer formulas, uh, mental prayer and contemplation, anything you can think of, really, it's a means to an end. And that end is union with God through grace in this life and glory in the next. And union with God in this life and the divine indwelling and in the beatific vision. So more sanctifying grace in this life a greater presence of God, a greater union with him, a greater participation in his life will mean in heaven a greater happiness and a greater glory in the life of the Holy Trinity. Grace is the seed of glory. And we should keep all of this in perspective, uh, means and ends, that the ultimate end of everything we do in the spiritual life when we come to Mass and receive the sacraments uh, is to increase in divine grace. And obviously this truth uh, of the divine indwelling. Uh, perhaps I made it more complicated uh, than than need be, um, but it is of paramount importance for our prayer life especially and the whole spiritual life. God wants an intimate union with us and God is not a distant God. He's not way off in the clouds. He's closer than close and this changes everything. Uh, and If only we would take this one truth to heart and lived its consequences, we would be saints. First of all, we would avoid mortal sin that drives the Holy Trinity from our souls. We would be able to pray in any place because we know that we carried God with us. We are living temples. We would never be truly lonely because our divine friend is always with us. We would strive for purity of heart because we would remember that God is in us. God is with us. God is dwelling in us. So we would grieve not the holy ghost as saint paul says so he said that to his early christians to the early christians grieve not the holy ghost what he meant is that sins grieve the holy ghost who dwells in them that was a very uh motivating uh reason for them uh because they 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 had this truth so much at heart as i said i think if we kept this in view um it would be helpful for our prayer life obviously there are some places that are more conducive to prayer and recollection than others i think uh, of course the church traditional catholic chapel with a uh, a tabernacle of course is most conducive to prayer and our lord is is present there in the blessed sacrament uh um, some some rooms are more conducive to prayer than others um but ultimately we have to convince ourselves that god is truly everywhere in his omnipresence, and that he desires to be sought everywhere. And more especially that if we are in the state of grace, he dwells in us as a living temple. And we, uh, this is what um, uh, St. John Chrysostom, he somewhat humorously expressed this when he wrote, uh, look at St. Paul. Did he have at his disposal a church in which to pray? No, only a prison. The king, Ezekiel, had but his room and a bed. The good thief, a cross. Jeremias was plunged into mire, Daniel into a lake, Jonas into a whale, and Job was stretched on a dung heap. And he adds, pray in any place you may be. You are the temple of God. Do not seek temples other than yourself. So, of course, he wasn't downplaying necessarily uh, churches, but that you are a temple of God. You can worship the Holy Trinity within you when he dwells in you. And I wanted to close again with some quotes from different spiritual writers, just, just on this truth in regard to the spiritual life. Um, again, it all comes down to uh, growing in the love of God. You know, we'll never totally understand all these truths, And perhaps I shed a little bit of light here and there. Perhaps I made it more uh, dark for some. I I hope not. I hope I shed light on this mystery. But the the important thing is to remember that God truly dwells in the soul in the state of grace. And that this is a fruitful truth, uh, a source for spiritual progress. I just wanted to end with some quotes from some saints here and theologians. I don't apologize for quoting often, because first of all, I want to show people that I'm not making these topics up. Um, They are part of Catholic tradition. They're part of uh, the spiritual life, Catholic spirituality. Um, They confirm if I explain something and another author explains it better, perhaps uh, someone will get uh, something out of my explanation. They'll get maybe more out of the other. uh, But I want to back up everything I say, um, just to confirm it. And also, you know, I have a, a pretty decent library, uh, about 4,000 books. And look, there's a lot of uh, wisdom of the ages. And so that's why I quote all these authors, to show that, uh, is to give to people some of the best that I have here at my disposal that other people may not have access to. So I quote them verbatim, rather than just paraphrase them. So we have... St. John of the Cross, he says, The Word, together with the Father and the Holy Ghost, is hidden essentially in the inmost center of the soul. Wherefore, the soul that would find him through union of love must go forth and hide itself from all created things according to the will and enter within itself in deepest recollection, communing there with God in intimate and affectionate fellowship, esteeming all that is in the world as though it were not. Hence, St. Augustine, speaking with God in the soliloquies, said, I found thee not, O Lord, without, because I erred in seeking thee without when thou wert within. He is then hidden within the soul, and there the good contemplative must seek him. St. Teresa of Avila writes, Those who can shut themselves up in this little heaven of the soul, where he dwells, who has created heaven and earth, may believe that they are walking in an excellent way, and that they shall not fail to drink of the water of the fountain, for in a little time they will make great progress. A spiritual writer by the name of Father Raoul Plu, or Plus, he's a Jesuit, he writes, O Holy Trinity, residing in the intimacy of my soul, grant that I may often think of your ineffable presence within me, grant that I may so live with this presence and by this presence, that I may retire within it on any occasion, even when I am most likely to be distracted. The habit of doing all with you will keep me near you, living through you. Unquote. I wanted to point out here that uh, mystical prayer is really a natural progression in the Christian life. Uh, it's where we become conscious of this divine indwelling and we become conscious of God working inside the soul. So a mystic is really a, a, a normal Catholic. A normal Catholic that has this uh, life of grace in the soul and this divine indwelling, but now that Catholic soul, that mystic, that saint, becomes aware of it and conscious of it. So as we progress in the spiritual life, um, God may grant that grace. That is the natural uh, progression uh, in the Christian life, is mystical union with God, is to be aware consciously that God is actually present within me. I am personally of the school of thought, uh, of the school of spirituality that considers mystical union with God as the normal um, end in the life of grace, Uh, that if we are faithful to God, God will eventually lead most souls, maybe not absolutely everyone, for some reason known to him alone, perhaps there's some exceptions, but normally that he would lead souls to this mystical union with God, this conscious awareness of God's presence uh, in the more um, higher stages of union with God and transforming union or the mystical marriage with God. Um, so really the mystical life is really the life of grace become conscious. And this is what Father Gardell, is a uh, Dominican, uh, uh, he says, the mystical experience is the final development of the life of the Christian in the state of grace, the mystical knowledge, the supreme but normal development of the state of grace. And we'll talk about uh, some of the uh, mystical uh, stages of prayer in in another episode way down the line uh, after we talk about contemplation. Now, I wanted to, there's two quotes here, two excerpts that I've always loved. One is from Father Paul de Jaeger, he was a Jesuit. I think this is from his book, um, The Virtue of Trust, or it may be, I forget exactly where I, I. uh, wrote this uh, quote out. It might have been from his book, uh, One with Jesus. Both of his works are very well, very good, uh, excellent works. Uh, Father Paul, the Jaeger or Jaeger, I don't know how to if that's a silent J. Uh, but he wrote this, quote, The ecstatic love of God is revealed especially in the twofold gift which comprises on the one hand the Incarnation and the Holy Eucharist, and on the other, the presence of God in the soul, which is sanctified and deified. The first gift, which is more tangible, is relatively well known and appreciated by the faithful. The second is all but non existent so far as they are concerned. And who is responsible for this? Those apparently who should have fathomed, relished, and have given expression in their lives to these magnificent truths and then have striven with enthusiasm to make them known to the faithful yet how much has been lost to the spiritual life by this neglect? What an uplift beyond the trivialities of this present life would be provided by the consciousness that we are no longer simply children of men, but sons of God by adoption. How contemptible would appear the petty things of earth in the light of the knowledge that we are naturalized children of God, and so to speak, transformed into his being. Above all, how it would transform the lives of innumerable Christians, and even of priests and religious, were they only to realize this sublime truth. God is the divine guest of my soul, dwelling there day and night, desirous of receiving the unceasing homage of my intimate friendship and love. What greater incentive to the practice of the interior life and recollection is there than such considerations? If we but made them pass into our lives, in comparison with them how weak and ineffectual are the many other motives so often put forward to urge us on in the spiritual life the advantages of a life of recollection are praised the dangers of dissipation are detailed perhaps even some mention is made of god everywhere present who beholds our inmost thoughts but we forget the god who is who in his infinite love deigns to stand in need of our friendship and who in order the more easily to secure it, gives himself to us in the intimacy of our souls and makes of them his heaven, his living tabernacles. Not enough stress is laid on the fact that though we cannot, whenever we wish, enjoy the company of the God man on our altars, it is, however, possible for us to withdraw, to withdraw, like Saint Catherine of Siena, into ourselves to commune with the God of our hearts. We believe that no consideration would be more conducive than this to a life of unceasing prayer and continual converse with God. Is not the love of interior recollection and familiar intercourse with God a special characteristic of interior souls? If they have great devotion to Jesus and the Blessed Sacrament, they are equally devoted to Jesus, the eternal Word, the the guest and life of their soul. The eighth chapter of the second book of The Imitation of Christ shows this very clearly. But it is regrettable that, on account of the silence maintained maintained on the dogma of the abiding presence within us, many souls take so long to attain to this very excellent practice of devotion to God, the guest of our heart, while others never arrive so far in all their spiritual life. Unquote. and another quote from Father Raul Plus or Plou? he says, "How many times?" Have we not heard Christian souls express the longing to live in intimacy with God, to have with him more than simple, formal, and semi-official relations limited to occasional acts of devotion, observed more to fulfill a command and to respond to a real need of love? One often asks, what can I do to attain this intimacy? What is the basis of a life of true union with God? Blessed are you if you desire divine intimacy. No grace could be more precious for you than this yearning to leave off formalism in order to live intensely our magnificent religion. Never to drive God from one soul by grave sin is an essential but negative task. The true Christian will wish to do more. Having sounded the depths of the gift of God, he sees that it consists not only in the presence of a certain something in his soul and in the super elevation of his powers of knowing and loving, but in the intimate presence of someone, the great someone, of the Holy Trinity itself. From this conviction, he will advance to the realization that the logic of love requires him to cultivate this divine presence, to honor it, to make the most of it, to surround it with a positive devotion. If among the best Christians, many lack an interior spirit, it is because they do not sufficiently fathom the mystery of the divine indwelling. They lack faith and motivation, Unquote. And one of the uh, souls, uh, recent uh, um, religious, uh, relatively recent, who took this mystery to heart, and lived it, and became a saintly soul with Sister Elizabeth of the Holy Trinity. She was a Carmelite nun in Dijon, France, and she died in 1906. She was only 26 years old, uh, pretty much a contemporary of uh, St. Therese of the Child Jesus, probably herself a saint, although she was never canonized, but she made this doctrine, her doctrine, the Holy Trinity dwelling within her, was her life, was her, the basis of her spiritual life, um and she wrote beautiful things on this and this is a famous quote i quoted this before uh but it's so beautiful i I need to quote it again she says this let us live with god as with a friend let us make our faith a living thing so as to remain in communion with him through everything that is how saints are made we carry our heaven within us since he who completely satisfied every longing of the glorified souls in the light of the beatific vision is giving himself to us in faith and mystery. It is the same thing. It seems to me that I have found my heaven on earth, since heaven is God and God is in my soul. The day I understood that, everything became clear to me, and I wish I could whisper this secret to those I love, in order that they also might cling closely to God through everything, and that Christ's prayer might be fulfilled. Father, that they may be made perfect in one." And I just wanted to close with one last thought. This life of grace, this divine indwelling is basically heaven begun on earth. It is heaven begun, life everlasting, and embryo. And uh, Sister Elizabeth said, heaven is God and God is in my soul. In heaven, the veil will be removed and our intellect will be given uh, a supernatural uh, gift called the light of glory and we will be able to see face-to-face God dwelling in our soul, and this will be the essence of heaven. Pope Leo XIII wrote this in his encyclical on on, uh, the Holy Ghost. He says, quote, That wondrous union which is known by the name of indwelling differs only in regard of its state and degree from that by which God confers beatitude on those who have entered heaven, unquote. So on earth, When we are in the state of grace, we possess God, and we enjoy him to a certain extent. But in heaven, this possession will be a clear vision, and it will fill our soul with ecstatic happiness and joy for all eternity. But it is the same God. God is already here. If we only had enough faith, enough love for God, heaven would begin right now. So let us not forget that we are temples of God. God truly dwells in our heart. We have to keep close to God in our mind and heart. We have to stay in his presence, reflect and remember that he is with us. He's always with us. He's always watching us. Not always watching us as the Jansenists mistakenly taught or or overemphasized. He's not watching us in order to find a reason to leave us. God only leaves a soul reluctantly. He's not out to get us. But he wants intimate union with the soul. He is on the lookout for acts of love, that we remember him. He wants a soul uh, to truly seek him, to love him, to trust him, to be his true friend, to live intimately with him from day to day in all our works. And that soul, he will reward with more and more grace, more and more intense union with himself in this life and in the next life. And so with that, I come to an end.
0: All right. Well, uh thank you uh, very much father uh, again for um teaching us and sharing all these uh, these thoughts with us and I would just uh before we let you uh get back to your other important work that you have to do, father uh, just would remind listeners we solicit assistance for our uh, radio network, but of course uh, our guests, uh, especially our clerical guests, they have apostolates of their own and uh, Father Bernard is the pastor of Our Lady of Victory Church in London, Ontario, Canada, uh, but he's also um, trying to found a, a Benedictine monastery there. As we mentioned in mm-hmm. the Zero Show, he originally was a, a monk at Christ the King Abbey in Alabama, and uh, as far as I know, since the dissolution of that monastery there aren't any benedictine monasteries anywhere in the world so it's uh, an extremely important apostolate for the restoration in the church for us to have uh, monasteries for contemplative monks so uh, if you're able to uh, assist in that at all i know father uh, currently has one uh, postulant with him and uh, you can make further inquiries the Father, or if you're able to uh, send a dono- mm-hmm. donation, you can do that to Our Lady Victory Church at 1715 Dundas Street East in London, Ontario, Canada. Uh, again, that's 1715 1715 Dundas, D-U-N-D-A-S Street East, London, Ontario, and the postal code is... November five Whiskey three echo one N five W three E one. So um if I could uh, add I, something uh please yeah, yeah please do Father.
1: Uh, just to be fair, there, I mean uh the Society does have uh, a Benedictine monastery in New Mexico uh under Father Cyprian. Uh but other than that, uh I'm not really aware of any uh that are functioning. Uh so um having a second monastery in the world, there used to be thousands upon thousands, tens of thousands of monasteries. To have two or three or four or five in the world is not superfluous. Uh, we need contemplatives. And um, I definitely, I, I'm trying, I, I do have a postulant with me, uh, but I can't do it. I, I, I can't really uh, succeed or, or establish a community without donations. And it, it's a very difficult uh, time period uh, to, to start a community, but I hope Uh, God willing, if he uh, uh, allows benefactors to be inspired to assist me in this, uh, then I could be able to uh, um, uh, purchase uh, a property and and start building and and, uh, to have more room to accept vocations. But in the meantime, uh, I definitely can't accept any more vocations. I have no room. Uh, um, So I I appreciate uh, anyone uh, able to help me. And I do thank all those who have assisted me I, I appreciate it from the depths of my heart, uh, and may God bless you all, and, and, and uh, you are my prayers and, and my masses um, as my benefactors, and I appreciate that.
0: Mm-hmm. Right, and uh, yeah, very um, uh, fair to point out Our Lady of Guadalupe Monastery in Silver City, New Mexico, um, but as Father mentioned, they're uh, in association with the Society of St. Pius X, so as I suppose the big, right. uh, a big difference between that Benedictine monastery and what Father Bernard is trying to uh, get going would be the, whether there's that theological consistency as regards right. the, the position one takes towards Jorge Bergoglio and the, uh, right. also known as Francis, and the other Vatican II claimants, Since the Silver City Benedictines, so I suppose they'd be of a, what we might call a recognize and resist persuasion. Right.
1: Well, they're definitely um, uh, holy men. They're definitely holy men, and and doing uh, a a good work, I think. Uh, um, I believe so. I I think their position necessarily is inconsistent, like you said, but I I do think that they're good men, and and, uh, I'm glad that they exist. At least they're trying to keep alive the Benedictine life.
0: Right. And again, as you say, Father, it's certainly not superfluous at all to have two right. or three or even a hundred Benedictine monasteries right. in the Usually world. And, 30,
1: 40, 50,000 of them. So.
0: Right. And and it would seem to me that we need contemplatives praying more than ever in these days. So the, the more, right. the more, the better. Mm-hmm. So um, w- with that, Father, I-, I thank you again. And um, uh, we'll, uh, we'll be back in August with uh, Father for a continuation of this. The network takes, month of July off, uh, which is uh, a good natural break, and it's probably especially good because I know the Samurai Priests do their yearly priest meeting in July, so that'll uh, free Father Bernard up to go to that mm-hmm. without having to worry about preparing a, a show for uh, the spiritual life. But uh, we will be back as usual, uh, third Sunday in August, so uh, we look forward to, to returning then. and. um uh, uh thanks again father and i'll i'll let you uh, get back to, to your other other work then
1: okay thank you very much god bless you uh
0: now of course if anyone would like to uh contact us at our show uh, we're always happy to take questions you can contact us at spirituallife@truerestoration.org uh, uh, it's all one word s p i r i t u a l l-i-f-e at truerestoration.org, and uh, we're more than happy to pass emails along to Father Bernard um, or uh, address questions on the show. As listeners may remember back on our second episode, we spent a fair bit of time answering an important question that a listener had posted on Facebook, so please don't hesitate to bring those questions forward. And uh, all of us here at the Restoration Radio Network would ask that if you found this show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you and your faith, that you please consider making whatever donation is possible to our apostolate, no matter how small it may be. To those of you who have donated, a heartfelt thank you for, thank you for your kindness and generosity. Remember that above and beyond material contributions, the most important donation you can make to our work here is prayer. Please think of offering a Mass, a rosary, or even a simple Ave for our work the next time you pray And, of course, I'd include uh, Father Bernard's Fledgling Monastery in those uh, prayer requests as well. Um, If you have any questions or comments or would like to reproduce our copyrighted work on your channel in some format, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, Questions of that nature can be directed to us at mail at truerestoration.org. And uh, although the show is copyrighted and all rights are reserved, Uh, permission can very frequently be obtained easily by contacting us so uh, thank you again for listening and for the restoration i'm nicholas wansbutter and uh, may god bless you and we will see you again in august